Hello and welcome to Women of the Middle East podcast. Women of the Middle East. This podcast relates the realities of Arab women and their rich and diverse experiences. It aims to present the multiplicity of their voices and wishes to break overdue cultural stereotypes about women of the Middle East. My name is Amal Malki. I'm a feminist, scholar, and educator. This is Women of the Middle East podcast. This is season four, Women Voices Across Genres, where I will be speaking to women producing feminist content across different genres and outlets. These courageous voices delve into untapped areas such as women with disability, hybrid identities, intergenerational trauma, feminist narrative and activism, and much, much more. I'm your host, Amal Malki, contributing to creating a new narrative about us by us. This is Women of the Middle East podcast. Hello and welcome. Uh, our guest here is in Doha in our studios today, uh, Naza Al-Kijo. Uh, born in Tehran, Iran, and raised in the UK. Naza is a humanitarian, a philanthropist, and global education advocate, focusing on education, empowerment of women and girls, and the environment. This is only a snippet of her bio, very long bio. Naza, we're very happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you're a 3D, well-rounded activist. Mm-hmm. You're an environmentalist, human rights activist, and a philanthropist. You also advise the UNICEF on creating campaigns, but you also have founded um, your own initiative, SAGE, uh, the Social Accelerator for a Green Economy. How can you encapsulate all of this in not just your own story, but in your young um, narrative of who you are as a Middle Eastern young woman? How did it all start and where is it heading to uh, what made you who you are? What's your story in your own words? Um, well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Um, why I moved to the UK when I was um, nine years old, and um, we were immigrants. We left Iran, and we, you know, the greatest things that I was that shaped me were the resources that I had access to. So the very basic resources, and the most important one of those for me was education. Um, I think growing up, my family really instilled the value of, of, of education and really encouraged me to pursue pursue it. And that almost, you know, for me, I you know, being in a position now where I'm able to help, where I'm able to do the same for others, I see it as a, you know, you shouldn't, you have to, you really, really have to look at this objectively from, from what, if, if you have the ability to do something like this, why wouldn't you? And also, you know, I know what, what it did for me. I know what how important it was for me. I know how important it was to shape my narrative. So I really want to be able to do the same things for, for others, especially young girls in my position. How grounded are you in your Middle Eastern identity? And you've moved to the UK at the age of nine. Um, again, talking about creating our own narratives. You are cre- creating a narrative that includes the lives, bettering the lives, right, uh, of other women, men, youth in the region. How grounded do you think you are in that identity? And what what did you manage to take uh, from that identity? And what did you manage to, you know, say, well, this doesn't work for me? 
Well, you know, growing up in a foreign country where English is your sec second language, you do, you know, it's very, very difficult to live authentically um, and, and not be influenced. You almost grow up in a duality. And it's only as you start to get older and become more confident and develop a better sense of agency that you really start to develop and understand how important your culture and heritage is to you. I didn't understand this until probably my late 20s. Um, you know, growing up in a very Eurocentric society, it's hard to, it's hard to be who you actually are. Um, I wasn't given many opportunities and you almost have to always fight and prove yourself a little bit more. First of all, because you're a woman. Second of all, because you're a Middle Eastern woman. And most of these societies generally have a misconception about you, about what you represent and what your ideolog ideological values are. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's hard. It's, it's very, you know, I won't lie to you and say I was always able to do that. Um, I was, it's difficult, but I think when you do start to own it and own your story, own your culture, or own your background, it really does empower you so much more. So today, I, I couldn't be prouder to be an Iranian woman. I couldn't be prouder to, you know, to, I, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't be prouder to be a Middle Eastern woman because I see, especially today, so many Middle Eastern women coming out and being powerful, powerful figures in the world and changing the narratives about who we actually are. So, you know, I, I at the moment, I'm, I'm it's still developing. I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm becoming more and more in tune with my culture. Um, and, you know, given that it's, it, you know, Iran is a, is, a, is a unique case because there's, you know, it is such a diverse country. There's so many different cultures, background, heritages that exist within, 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 within the country. So, again, it's still, it's still um, becoming clearer to me um, and, and it's still defining, but I, I, I am very proud to be a Middle Eastern woman. I think you do have the advantage, or you did have the advantage, growing up of looking at um, at identity and identity dynamics um, from a wider perspective. Um, I don't think it's a disadvantage. Now you would see, and this is why we I named uh, the podcast "Women of the Middle East" mm -hmm. not in the Middle East, mm -hmm. because there are many uh, Middle Eastern women living in the West. Um, and being exposed to the distorted images and ideologies about an orientalist, reductionist ideology about Middle Eastern women, Arab women, Muslim women, that unfortunately some have internalized. Some of us have internalized even in the Middle East mm -hmm. through media, Hollywood and such. Um, but you were able to look at it from an educational perspective, learn about the world, learn about Middle Eastern um, identity and, and manage to um, escape the indoctrination that some Middle Eastern women have gone through, mm -hmm. right? That made them believe in their um, lack of agency and their passivity and, and their lack of power. Mm -hmm. What would you say about that? I think you're 100% right, and I think today it's whether we like it or for, the, for good or for bad. Social media has actually played a huge part in this, because what it's what it's done is that it's essentially shown women in all over the world that there are people like you out there. So own who you are, live authentically, 
and be you know be be the creator of your own story you don't have to conform i mean you know there is the dark side of, of social media as well and there is but i think more importantly depending on how you see things and how what your you know what your education has been you can either use it as a tool that amplifies that empowers you or you can you know as you say indoctrinate yourself to to what everybody else believes you should be mm -hmm. no, true um let's talk about sage so during upheavals of any sort of course whether political unrest or wars or displacement and recently a health pandemic girls and women are the first to uh, suffer mm -hmm. and the long-term uh, impacts on them is also this uh, disproportionately uh, bigger. Mm -hmm. um, what are the gender-sensitive measures you've taken in SAGE to ensure that help and support is extended to this disadvantaged big huge portion of, of our population in the Middle East? What What's the work that you've done? You know, I want to tell you a story. So the first, when I first started um, Sage Foundation, one of the things that I focused on was climate, um, because you see how much of um, social development is starting to unravel. And I remember being at a school, and we were, you know, we, we had a program at the time where we were um, speaking to kids about climate education, recycling, you know, things like that. Um, and I remember going to into this particular classroom, and there was a girl, young girl there, and she was like, I could feel her looking at me from, from the periphery of, of from my periphery. And as soon as I finished speaking, she was the first first person to put her hand up. And she said to me, she said, with all due respect, she says, I know what you're telling me, but my struggle is that I'm trying to get home without getting raped. And that was for me. I started to realize, and you know, I, I apologized to her first, and I said, "Look, I'm, I'm here to, I'm here to share, but I'm also here to learn. So teach me, so I can understand your context a little bit better." And you know, the one thing I, I started to realize as, as as I did more and more work on the ground was that you, women and girls, has to be at the intersection of whatever it is you're doing, whether it's public health, whether it's climate, whether it's um, and whatever it is, you have to, you, you always have to prioritize women and girls. COVID was probably um, the, you know, it regressed gender equality so much. There was actually a report that was released by the World Economic Forum um, a year after the pandemic. And it showed that we regressed 17 years in gender equality. 17 years. That's you know, that, that has such an impact on society. And, you know, going forward, thinking about social development, you have to include women and girls. For, for a healthy, stable society, things don't function without it. Um, and the other thing that I think is really important at, the, at, at these intersections is, is education. Everything always goes back to education. And it must be contextual. Mm. It's not something that, you know, the same values do not apply all over the world. The same concepts do not are not applicable all over the world, and I think it's really, really important to go in with that mindset and understanding that these solutions essentially come from grassroots. We can be the people that frame um, that that frame these structural uh, frameworks on the ground, but essentially it's it's a dialogue between people on the ground and and the organization. So. Whenever we do any work, we always, or whenever we work with a grassroots organization, the first thing we always ask them is, what work do you do in this area, in this field of work, with women and girls? 
Um, so, so that's how we really came to it. I think, I think, I think that's what you were alluding to, right? That's amazing. You've done some work on um, child marriages too, mm -hmm. right, in Yemen. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me more about that? So, child marriages. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I was in Afghanistan with UNICEF in March 2020. And we were in a refugee camp um, in Herat. Herat is right at the border of Iran and Afghanistan. And um, we went back. I went back six months later, and the number of child brides. I mean, it was visibly worse, you know. And the problem was that organization, international organization, had not been able to collect enough data by that point. So from March to October, that was an ample time. I mean. It was, but it, it wasn't. There was not enough data around this. But as an individual, when you get online, you see this. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started to look into child marriage, and, and Yemen was one of the one of the countries that's that's were struck by this. And you know, you look at the root causes of child marriage. Almost always, I mean, nobody wants to wed their children off at a young age. It is almost always out of sheer desperation. And when I spoke to some of the mothers in these refugee camps, they were so ashamed that they didn't want to even speak to me about it. But the woman that, that, that did share, she said to me, she, one of them I remember said to me distinctly, she said, look, imagine not eating for two weeks and having to, you know, having to feed six other children. On top of that, not, you know, Security means very different things to me and you, and for and, and for people that live within these refugee camps. Mm -hmm. Very often, the parents believe that these children are safer with with a man. So there's a number of factors that play into this, but you know, it, it's very easy for us to look at it and shame it and and look at it as something very very negative, but. Almost always, it's out of sheer desperation. I mean, personally, I don't know about you. If I don't eat for half a day, or, or even a day, I start to, you know, my I can't think logically. I can't think, you know. So imagine that happening for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, a month, and really not being able to to feed your family. So most of the time, it, it is out of desperation that they are wedding their daughter daughters off for for a dowry and for security. Um, so and you know Yemen is one of those places that poverty is so rife, given you know the conflict that's been happening there over the years, um, given climate change that's affecting food security. It's a very it's a very it's very complex. But essentially, these are the things that feed into the issue of child marriage becoming so prevalent in places like Yemen. Mm -hmm. When I ask you about your story and how can you say it um, in your own words? Um, and this is how what I sensed from your story just by reading about you. Um, how do you, where do you get this courage and conviction from? Uh, we all fight, uh, some of us for women and for girls, some of us from the luxury of their homes, mm -hmm. from the luxury of our homes, mm -hmm. right? But some are on the ground meeting those people, hearing those stories mm -hmm. that really break your heart. Um, where do you get the strength from, uh, Nazar? Tell me, tell me, and tell me, how do you manage to take care of yourself while going through those other people's ordeals? Look, I, you know, I, I, my childhood wasn't the easiest childhood. I'll be very honest. Um, 
you know, I, I had a, I have an amazing mother who really fought against, you know, all odds to give us the best life she she possibly could. And she's she's a warrior. She really is. And you know, she inspired me so much because I saw the things that she went through growing up. And you know, they 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 instilled these values in me. And what I, you know, for me to get on ground, I, you have to, if you want to do this, this kind of work, you have to be on the ground. You don't really have a choice. Don't get me wrong. I, I love traveling. I love, you know, meeting people. I love learning from them, but you know, sometimes it does wear me down. But ultimately, if, if I want to do what I'm doing effectively, I have to be on the ground. And I have to understand it from people's perspective, not something, you know, it's very easy for me to sit there as well. The world needs education. So let's let's give education to no you, you but what kind of education? It has to be and you know, so much of colonial legacies reside in, in aid and philanthropy. Yeah. Right? The ideology that this is the kind of education that people no, not necessarily. Yeah. Education is contextual. However, there are some some things that you know, there's some tools that, that there, are, there are common similarities, but again, it's, it's very, very contextual. Um, how do I take care of myself? I do burn out now and again, um, but I do prioritize my health as well. Um, I try to eat well, I try to exercise, I try to rest well. Um, and I also try to spend time with friends, spend time with family and, you know, and, and have that downtime. But yeah, it's 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 normal. I mean, I'm sure you 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 have it as well. It's when you when you love something so much um, and it transcends the concept of work, you do, you know, you do tend to burn out a little bit, and it is normal. But it becomes a huge responsibility too because you get to meet those women, and as you said, each woman has a story of her own, um, and this is the beauty of all of the efforts we do to bring those stories into life. Uh, I don't know how much, again, I'm generalizing by saying West because mm -hmm. it's never West and East, but mm -hmm. we see it nowadays with the World Cup and the attacks on Qatar, how unified the attacks are, how, you know, so it's white supremacy, it's colonial mentality. And this is exactly what happens when they deal with Middle Eastern women. No, you break this down and mm -hmm. you tell them each woman has a story. Mm -hmm. And now woman in Yemen has a collective story. And yes, poverty plays a role in it. Yes, um, uh, their fear, the, the insecurity, their fear for their girls. And we saw it in Iraq too, when they took the girls out of school. But families who believed in education took their girls out of school because girls were raped on the on the way to the school. Mm -hmm. So it's out of fear for the girls. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, some of them cover them up because they know what's going to happen when a girl looks, you know, feminine on the street mm -hmm. by all of this militia. So they need to hear those stories. What do you do to relate those stories? How do you tell those stories to the world? Look, I think it's really important to for people to be able to own their own narrative and tell their own story. People's stories are not um, are not the West's to tell. Middle Eastern stories are nobody else, to t you know, belong to nobody else but to Middle Eastern people. Um, we must be able to share our own our own narratives. Um, I think again, it goes back to you know, and I think as women we are so powerful in this and being able to empathize, 
in being able to understand and being able to, you know, under, you know, seeing where one, one another come from, you know, and I think Qatar has been, you know, at the forefront of a, you know, uh, of a very aggressive um, campaign against them. Um, there's no doubt that there's issues in Qatar, and I think, you know, everybody has acknowledged that. Um, they want to be put on the world map. Um, they want the world to come and see their culture. Um, and please, if I'm speaking out of terms, I'm not a Qatari woman, but if I'm, if I'm speaking out of terms, please, please stop me. But this is the impression that I've gotten. And, you know, instead of saying, okay, let's sit down with one another. Let's understand where we come from. Let's understand, um, let's understand our, our you know, or where, where, where things where things stem from, and the sensitivities, um, political sensitivities, um, social sensitivities. You know, it's I, I, I'm I'm actually quite stunned <laughs> how how this is turning. I've, I've ne I never expected it to be. You know, that everybody deserves to be objectively criticized, mm -hmm. but never to this extent. So I think the most important thing right now. And again, this is not my place to say, this is the place of a Qatari woman to come out and say, but to be able to tell your story of who you are, how you operate within this society, what challenges do you see? And really, you know, challenging the status quo within your own community. It is not the job of, of, of the West to, 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 to do this for, for Qatar. Um, so, you know, some of my closest friends live in this country um, you know uh, one of our mutual friends Donna for example she's I mean they are you know there's they're remarkable women and I know they face certain challenges I know they first face certain barriers but they are high flyers they are achieving things that you know a lot of people don't achieve in a lifetime so I think you know being able to now share these share these stories and putting you know um, women like yourself on uh, you know on the world stage and say this is who we are this is what we do is is key for Qatar and to be able to really tell their story and and share that with the world and break that narrative historical narrative of um needing the west to save us no we don't need yes. to save us <laughs> we have our own issues where believe yes. me we're yeah we're calling it out and we're talking about it yes. and and we will be fixing it on our own um, you've done work on finding digital solutions for women and girls and I think maybe this had stemmed from COVID and, and being disconnected especially um, during the pandemic the gender digital gap was brought to the surface reflecting yet another harsh reality mm -hmm. for Middle Eastern women. Um, women and girls were deprived from continuing their online education, had no access to information, no access even to security. Mm -hmm. So those who uh, were confined in, in uh, you know, and houses that, you know, with their aggressors, for example, uh, with lack of security, um, um, whether in their houses or in their communities. What's the work that you've done in terms of digital access to for women and, and girls? So I actually work with UNICEF on this project. Um, it's a project called Giga. And um, what Giga is aiming to do is to connect every single school to the world, to the internet, um, in the world, to the internet by 2030. And um, I'll be perfectly honest. At first, when I when I started looking at this project, I didn't really understand the importance of it. And then COVID happened, mm -hmm. and you saw how that digital divide 
affected people who didn't have access to, to the internet. And not just in terms of education, but in terms of employment as well, right? If you do not have access to the, as, as a student, you know, and, and you're, you're in a developing nation where your, your family is really trying to make ends meet by, on a day-to-day -day basis, and they're stretching themselves and they're sending you to school. When your school shuts down for a period of time, the parents are often reluctant to send their kids back to school, yeah. especially girls. So what they tend to do is a child marriage that results in child marriage, or um, they send them into employment from a young age. Now, keeping those girls out of education, as we've discussed, creates a very un unhealthy and balanced society. And on top of that, the mothers, let's just use the mothers as an, ex as an example, they're not able to, you know, what COVID did, what a, what a lockdown means for me and you is very different to what a lockdown means to women in Yemen or women in Afghanistan that are living in refugee camps, that are working on a day-to-day -day basis just to, to eat, you know, not, not to save money, not to pay for bills, just to eat. That was, you know, it, it, it created such an unequal, you know, an un unequal world, which is what we're seeing today. I mean, I don't know about you, but I certainly feel like the world's on fire right now. I feel like we're at such a, you know, we're, and, you know, digital digital connectivity is, is now a human right. It's no longer, it's as important as having water because it gives employment opportunities and access to education that wouldn't conventionally be there. On top of that, it is also important to make sure that women and girls have access to accelerators and and um, and incubators that gives them opportunities into the workplace uh, and into the market after their education. So it's you know digital connectivity plus these programs that transitions women into the workplace are it, are as important as water. They're as essential as water. So let's talk about Iran. Um, protests have been rocking Iran since September, following the killing, of course, of the 22-year-old Kurdish woman Zeyna Mahsam, um, I mean, by the police forces for wearing her hijab inappropriately. It's for sure not the first protest uh, against the regime that controls women in the name of religion, but because of the attention that this has been um, gaining um, worldwide, some called it the biggest women's rights movement in the world. Some say it's a revolution in the making. What's your take on this? Look, what's happening in Iran is, um, I mean, it shows you the power of women. For a very, very long time, what the um, government in Iran has done has turned men against women. They have, um, they have forced or subjugated women to laws that naturally makes them unequal in society, which, which naturally makes it a systemic issue. And, you know, this is the first female-led female revolution that is supported by men. And it is the first time you know, as you, as you rightly said, there, there has been times where you know, there have been protests in the past, um, but this is the first time that protesters are coming to the streets and they are um, fight, they are, they are they're, they're demanding a, a, the, the downfall of, of, the, of the theocracy. The Islamic Republic has failed 
um, not just women, but also men. And today we see that, you know, on, on, on social media, we see that in the news and we see, and you know, this, I mean, I, I really, I, I don't, you see it, for you, you see it for yourself, you know, being subjugated to laws means that you are not able to live your, 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 your authentic, you're not allowed to be your authentic self. You're not allowed to embody your identity. It is not about religion. In Iran, we have different back, different religions, different backgrounds, different. And when you're not able to embody that, when you are forced to be something that you are not, this is the outcome. Yeah. yeah. So, women are fighting not just because you know it's, it's not it's not about the hijab. It's not about it's not about religion. It's about being able to make your own choices. It's about being able to be who you are. And you know, I, I'm I'm so I've never been as proud as I am today to be an Iranian woman. Mm. I really and and I don't know where they get the you know this bravery. This they are truly, truly, truly a remarkable generation because they are fearless and they are you know they're going into the streets and, and they're chanting, "Tell my mother she no longer has a daughter," because they're what what that and, and what that's essentially saying is that you know I could die. But I'm willing to die for my freedom. Yeah. I'm, I'm willing to die to be able to make choices about myself. So it's it's a remarkable time for us as Iranians. And I really, you know, I I stand in solidarity with my Iranian brothers and sisters. I stand in solidarity with my compatriots. And I just I really wish a, a better future for Iran because Iranian women deserve that. And a change in regime in Iran is going to mean significant changes geopolitically within the Middle East. So I really, you know, I, 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 can, I, I really, I, I stand proud. I, I stand in solidarity and I'm, and I'm behind them as, as you know, 100% and I will continue to amplify their voices and, um, and share their stories because they, they truly deserve that. That bravery deserves it. They do, they do. And, and we're all here also um, join you to and, and support of Iranian men and women uh, who are asking for, um, as you said, uh, a chance to form their own identities. This is a generation that was stripped away from her agency, from its agency, from its um, uh, freedom, from its right to, to form their own identity. Um, and it's all about identity politics. It's not about religion, it's the use of religion. To um, to oppress this generation, and I, I again, whether it's a revolution or yes, it is a women's movement. Definitely, it's a woman women's movement that is turning into a human rights movement. Mm -hmm. It's a human rights movement. Absolutely. Stop. Um, unlike what we've seen with the Arab Spring, mm -hmm. the Arab Revolution, where it turned out as you know a collective movement, and then women were stripped out of that those movements mm -hmm. okay the moment women spoke about their rights they said oh it's not time for you mm -hmm. but this started with rights of the human and the woman is at the, at the heart and yes. the core of that movement um women no essentially women are at the intersection of human rights exactly. as we said before it's if you don't take women and equal gender equality into into consideration 
you you have a very flawed and skewed ideology about what human rights means. True, true. And I love the acts of defiance that came out of this uh, mm -hmm. movement. So we know that the hair cutting, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, the men and women supporting, especially women from East and West, supporting Iranian women by cutting their hair online. But also I read yesterday that sanitary pads used to block CCTV cameras in the metro stations and trains in Iran as an, also an act of defiance against the surveillance of women. So you want to see us and see yeah. how we act? Like, <laughs> Look at this. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> that's, 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 uh, that's powerful to say the truth. Um, what can feminists and feminist groups and organizations in the MENA do to help uh, Iranian women at this stage? What can we all do to help them? I mean, I think the most important one and the most obvious one is continue to amplify their voices. Continue to stand in solidarity because they are dying every single day. And you know, there's, there's different numbers and, um, and, and a lot of things coming out from the ground and there's this many people that are, I, I don't even, I don't, I don't know what the numbers are, but even that one person is one too many. Even that one child is one too many. So continue to share our stories, continue to cover. And you know, I really, I'm, I'm disappointed in mainstream media because they have really failed. I mean, more so now they're starting to pick it up and, and talk about it a little bit, but a bit more, but they have really failed in, in, in being able to amplify this. And I don't know if it's because they're not able to verify facts hmm. or you know I don't know there's no I don't believe that there's a conspiracy I just I, I, I you know I'm, I'm open to I'm open to hearing this from journalists hmm. they can tell us why aren't you covering our hmm. you know we're, we're actively reaching out to people and saying hey we're here share our stories yeah. um, that's 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 the first thing um, supporting organizations like Amnesty International they have set up a petition which I think is closed now actually but they have set up a petition to um, to hold for the UN to create a me me mechanism that will hold the government in Iran accountable for what they're doing. Mm. They are acting with impunity. They really are. They are killing people on the streets without, you know, without, in, in the name of what? And then, and you know, they have really disgraced religion. They have disgraced Islam. And you know, it's 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 a how to, to what extent so they must be held accountable so if you come across organizations that are holding people that are, are creating mechanisms to hold the government accountable please please support them um, and these are the two major things I would say for right now I mean it, it's continuing to develop we're continuing to you know see what, what what happens on the ground but I think amplification right now is the most important thing for us mm. Um, some slogans uh, emerged from this movement. Can you teach us one? Uh, I mean, the one I think everybody has heard is "Woman, Life, Freedom," yes. um, which actually uh, originated from from the Kurdish women fighting um, Daesh in Syria. Mm. Um, that's 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 where it actually originated from, Jinjian um, Azadi. Um, and you know, and it's it's such a symbolic yes. uh, symbolic slogan. Um, and there's another one uh, that, uh, that that you know that I don't know if you've seen some of the videos. The women are saying "Zana Azad Mana," I'm I am the free woman, uh -huh. and that the men are chanting "You're the pervert, you're the." <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, really, it's, 
at their, as I said, they're fearless, but these are these are the two that I would I would probably I mean and, and I'll share some videos with you so you can see these. Yes. Yeah. Okay, can you repeat them? So woman life freedom. Um and uh and, and, I'm, and I am a free woman in, in Farsi. In Farsi is Zan Azad Manan. Um so I'm I'm a free woman. You are the pervert, you're the desolate. <laughs> Lots of work needs to be done, as you said, contextualized education for men and women. Mm -hmm. And really needs to start really early in our lives for men to understand uh, that without women there is no life. And for women to understand that they need women as their best uh, allies. Yeah, and I think as you know, as, as feminists, our, one thing I would say is our job is to raise our children like that. Okay. Girls, and, and girl, girls and boys, yeah. teaching them you know, strong values about, you know, what the importance of a woman, the importance that, well, of a, what a woman symbolizes in your life, um, how to treat women, um, how to perceive women, um, not as as half of an individual, but as a as an individual equal to you. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that you're raising your children as well as, a, as, as, as feminists is, is extremely important. Exactly. So thank you so much. Uh, it's a lovely conversation that we had today and uh, um, painful, but real uh, and hopeful because there are women like you, young women like you, doing the work you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening and watching. To stay up to date with Women of the Middle East podcast, you can subscribe and don't forget to rate us. If you would like to contact me directly, you can do so on Instagram or Twitter or via email. This is